Okay, we are doing Zechariah and Malachi today, the last two prophets. And uh, then we are going to take a break from Bible overview. We will start back uh, in the spring, uh, January. It's like a six-week break here. Uh, January 7th, I believe, is when we start back up with the writings. So uh, if you're interested in... Uh, continuing with the Bible overview, I'd encourage you to check that out. Uh, we'll start back up January 7th, and that'll be a two-session uh, thing. We'll go through the writings, Psalms, all the way to the end of the Hebrew Bible, which is Chronicles. Uh, so we'll do all that in that 12-week uh, span there, January through March. Uh, so I encourage you to look, at, uh, look towards that. Um, so today we're finishing... The uh, Minor Prophets with Zechariah and Malachi. And if you remember, uh, we've seen this uh, theme of the entire Minor Prophets being that the restoration uh, that is coming for the people, that is coming through the Messiah. And we saw that at the very end of Haggai. Uh, Haggai 2, 21-23 says, Speak to Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, saying, I'm about to shake the heavens and the earth and to overthrow the throne of kingdoms. I'm about to destroy the strength of the kingdoms of the nations and overthrow the chariots and their riders. And the horses and the riders shall go down, every one of them by the sword of his brother. On that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will take you, O Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of Shealtiel, declares the Lord, and make you like a signet ring, for I have chosen you, declares the Lord of hosts. Zerubbabel being... Uh, the descendant of David here, um, and is continuing this theme here at the end of Haggai that we've seen throughout the Minor Prophets, starting with Hosea. Uh, if you remember Hosea 3, 4, and 5, which talked about this restoration coming in the future through the Messiah. Um, so what we're left with at the end of Haggai is this question of, um, is Zerubbabel actually the Messiah? Is there an actual fulfillment happening uh, right here. Um, is it Zerubbabel? So uh, Zechariah and Malachi will answer that question um, as we continue on with this theme. So uh, let's start here with Zechariah, uh, Zechariah 1 through 6. So Zechariah is a little bit larger, certainly uh, uh, the largest of the minor prophets, um, but still a minor prophet, still much smaller in content and scope than uh, Isaiah, Jeremiah, or Ezekiel. But nevertheless, a lot of rich things here. We're going to uh, start here in Zechariah 1 through 6 with um, eight visions. Uh, so uh, the, the content here, a message from God comes to the prophet Zechariah. Oh, I forgot to talk about this. Uh, Zechariah, written by Zechariah sometime around 480 B.C. So again, he's a contemporary of Haggai. Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi, these are all post-exile. This is... Uh, these are, folks actually are after the exile once they're returning or have returned from the exile back to the land. So uh, he's a contemporary of Haggai. Uh, I'm dating this around 480 BC. So, uh, okay, so Zechariah 1 through 6. A message from God comes to the prophet Zechariah. That's the blank there. God tells Zechariah to preach the, to the people, telling them to return to God and not be like their ancestors. 
a repentance that eventually came from their fathers who was long overdue. Zechariah then receives a series of visions. The first is of horses and horsemen who roam the earth. Uh, in the vision, God says that he is, quote, jealous for Jerusalem and Zion and angry with other nations. God says he will again have compassion on Jerusalem and Judah, and Judah will once again be blessed. Zechariah is then shown four horns and four craftsmen by the angel of the Lord. So this is the second vision the angel of the Lord, who tells him that the horns represent the other nations that used, used, used to scatter Judah. That's the blank there, scatter Judah. While the craftsmen represent God's control and defeat of these nations. In the third vision, Zechariah sees a renewed Zion protected by God. This Zion will have the presence of the Lord, and many other nations will join it. A fourth vision shows Joshua the high priest. That's the blank there, the high priest. And Satan standing before the angel of the Lord. Satan is rebuked, and the high priest's dirty garments, and the high priest's dirty garments are replaced with clean ones. The priesthood and authentic worship will soon be restored. God mentions my servant, the branch, who will remove the iniquity of that land in one day. And because of this, the people will invite their neighbor to sit with them. This branch is also mentioned in Isaiah 11.1. 1. Uh, there are there as the descendant of David who will judge and rule. And in Jeremiah 23, 1 through 8, there as the king who reigns wisely. Uh, here God refers to him as his servant, which connects this passage with the servant passages in Isaiah. Um, again, this is continuing the theme Restoration through the Messiah, uh, chapter 3, 8 through 10. Hear now, O Joshua, the high priest, you and your friends who sit before you, for they are men who are a sign. Behold, I will bring my servant the branch. For behold, on the stone that I have set before Joshua, on a single stone with seven eyes, I will engrave its inscription, declares the Lord of hosts. And I will remove the iniquity of this land in a single day. And that day, declares the Lord of hosts, every one of you will invite his neighbor to come under, the, under his vine and under his fig tree. So we have this theme again, continuing through. The restoration will come through the Messiah. Okay, so he's gone through four visions here. So far, we've got the horseman, which uh, means that God will again have, he will have compassion on Judah again. Uh, number two is the, uh, the four horses. Uh, this, this vision is about enemies being destroyed. Uh, the third vision is the renewed Zion. This is the presence of the Lord and many, um, uh, and many nations. And then uh, the fourth one is the new garments. And this is about the restoration that comes through the branch or through the Messiah. Okay, in the fifth vision, 
Zechariah sees a lampstand of gold and two olive trees. They represent the encouragement given to Zerubbabel by God during the building of the temple. It will be built by God's Spirit, not by might nor by power. <clears throat> Zechariah sees a sixth vision in which a flying scroll representing God's authority flies over all the land. It banishes all the unrighteous. Uh, the seventh vision also shows the banishment of evil, this time by two women with wings of a stork. Uh, the final vision that Jeremiah sees is one of four chariots. They patrol the earth. That's the blank there. Patrol the earth, showing God's control over all. The branch is again presented, this time as one who will build a temple. This person will not only rule on his throne, but will also be a priest. Consistent with this, Psalms claims that the Davidic ruler, that's the blank there, Davidic ruler, will be a priest like Melchizedek. Um, could I get a volunteer to read chapter 6, 11 through 15? This is a very uh, important passage. <clears throat> Any volunteers? Five verses? Yeah. Chapter 6, 11 through 15. Mm -hmm. Take the silver and gold and make a crown and set it on the head of the high priest Joshua, son of Jehozadak. Tell him this is what the Lord Almighty says. Here is the man whose name is the branch, and he will branch out from his place and build the temple of the Lord. It is he who will build the temple of the Lord, and he will be clothed with majesty, and will sit and rule on this throne. And he will be a priest on his throne, and there will be harmony between the two. The crown will be given to Hadiah, Tob Tobijah, Jedidiah, Hen, son of Zephaniah, as a memorial in the temple of the Lord. Those who are far away will come and help to build the temple of the Lord, and you will know that the Lord Almighty has sent me to you. This will happen if you diligently obey the Lord your God. Awesome. Thank you. So what we see here in this passage is very conclusively that the, the Messiah is actually not Zerubbabel. Uh, it says he will be a Davidic ruler like Zerubbabel, but he will also be a priest like Joshua. So not Joshua from Joshua, you know, going into the promised land. Uh, this is a new Joshua who's the high priest at the time. So this passage indicates the Messiah is neither one of these guys. He's going to be a guy in the future who actually is both, both the ruler and a priest. Um, and so again, this moves, this moves the re full restoration into the future even more. It will come with the Messiah, but hey folks, it's not coming right now. It's not coming through Zerubbabel. He is not the Messiah. Um, so it also interesting there in verse 15, this is actually going to happen when there is some obedience from the people. So there's actually going to be a full restoration when we see obedience. So <coughs> kind of indicates a conditional nature to it, but of course, 
We also see that the restoration <laughs> comes through in Ezekiel. We see the restoration comes because God gives the power um, and the spirit of God comes and transforms the heart. So, uh, but that does give an indication that this, this will happen at some point in the future. Um, okay, so the, the other four visions, we went through the first four. The, the other four, number five, is um, vision of the lampstand and trees. And this is about the temple. The temple will be built by God's spirit. Uh, the sixth vision is of a flying scroll. And this is about justice and authority in the land. And then the seventh vision is these, uh, the women, the stork women, the women with the wings of the stork. And this is about evil being removed from the land. And then the eighth vision is the vision of the four chariots. And that is that God will rule. The meaning of that is that God will rule over all the lands. Okay, so those are the eight visions. Um, and, but what we see here is the purpose of these eight visions is, is about God's kingdom. It's about the, the restoration of God's kingdom uh, through this branch. So um, let's talk about that. Uh, significance here, Zechariah is primarily concerned with God's kingdom. He sees in the future a renewed Jerusalem led by the branch. This renewed Jerusalem with God's presence and authentic worship is what we should be concerned with as well. Uh, what is our primary concern in life? Is it the kingdom of God or your own situation? How can we keep the coming of Christ and the kingdom at the forefront of our minds when there is so much going on around us? Ouch. Okay. Any, any thoughts here? Yeah. Um, we should never fear the one who can destroy our body. We all, the only one that we should fear is the one who can destroy our body and soul. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, that helps us think kingdom. Yeah, that's good. Yeah. I want to clarify with the eight visions. So is that the first of four um, prophesies the Jesus coming, first coming, and the church time? And then the second group, yeah, the four is about Jesus, second coming, and the millennium. Um, boy, that is a good question. I don't know that I would make that distinction like that. Um, but distinguishing between the two like that, I only went through four and then four just because it was helpful, <laughs> helpful to divide it like that. I don't know that I would make that distinction. Um, we'll talk more about kingdom of God here in a minute, but, um, yeah, I'll have to think about that one a little bit more to see if you can actually, do, you know, because uh, there are different stages of the kingdom, right? Institution of the kingdom. So um, new garments, restoration through the branch. Temple will be built by the God's spirit. I mean, you definitely say uh, we can't see a full fulfillment of these eight visions until the, you know, the full consummation of the kingdom. I would, I would uh, agree with that. But I'm not sure I would say, well, for... For Jesus, you know, first first coming, for Jesus' second coming, um, I'm not sure I'd make that exact distinction. But good question. Uh, anybody else on um, kingdom of God focus? Kingdom of God versus things going on. Oh yeah. Yeah right. 
think I am. Um, I think when I was growing up, I had a, I had a much more like the idea of what eternity was going to be like was so removed from what today is like. Um, you know that uh, it was very easy to keep those two separate and to just say, okay, well, I'm living in this today, and someday I'll live in that tomorrow. But um, as we've gone through the prophets and a lot more, you know, understanding of what the kingdom of God is, especially laid out in the Old Testament, it seems like there's a lot more parallels to how we operate today as a community and a people in the city, and then mm -hmm. how we'll operate then. You know, yeah, it's not yeah. like sitting in some cloud and just singing all day. Yeah, right. And so that helps me, I think, today understand a lot more closely how I can live in the kingdom today yeah. as we will live in the kingdom tomorrow. Yeah. Not perfectly. Yeah. Right. But, right. Like, but in living and interacting in the church. Yeah. Proclaiming the gospel to non-believers. You're talking about these kind of things, right? Yeah, this is right, your, yeah, yeah, exactly, yeah. yeah. Well, this is, it's, it's the common thing of, well, you know, we should desire heaven because these things are when we, what we do in heaven is honoring to God. We want to honor God with what we do. So if we don't like honoring God right now, that's a, you know, with, with our lives, that's a problem. Yeah, yeah. That's good. Yeah. That's good. Yeah. Yeah, the challenge for me, I mean, I've got work and German and just all kinds of stuff going on. And so the challenge is, well, what is it all about? Right? Like you said, like, is it, if it's really about the kingdom of God, then I should be able to handle the, all these challenges better. So, yeah. Yes. I think when you run into problems, you've tried to do too much, maybe, mm -hmm. or you're not, because uh, uh, he, I, I've seen it where the Lord will make things easier on you. Mm. You, know, you go, wow, that, that came out easy. I spend a lot of time worrying, uh, you know, the, you know, 90, what is it? I think it's Ben Franklin said you spend, 
you know, out of the hundred things you're worrying about, ninety, you know, only ninety percent of them never actually occur. But mm -hmm. you're, you're in this worry mode as opposed to trusting mode and just kind of going. Yeah. So. Yeah, that's good. But uh, in the end, it's you know that's what he wants you. He wants you. He. I don't think God really worries about all the stuff around you. He wants you to have that relationship going yep. all yep. the time. And yep. He just sort of will take care of everything else. Yep. Yep. I agree. That's good. All right, let's move on. Uh, Zechariah 7 through 8. Uh, people ask God about fasting. And he responds by saying, I'm sorry, 7 through 11. Uh, the people ask God about fasting, and he responds by saying that they have not really been fasting for God, but living for themselves. Um, God tells Zechariah that the people should practice kindness and compassion each to his brother. <clears throat> However, they have been stubborn and disobedient, not listening to the words of the Lord. Therefore, God sent them into exile. Uh, God says that because of his jealousy for Zion, he will once again come and live in the midst of the city. Uh, he will bring back a remnant of his people from the other lands and will be their God. There will be a peace and earthly blessing among the remnant in this time. And this is consistent with what we saw in Isaiah, where the remnant is living in Zion in the distant future. That's Isaiah 14, Isaiah 27, and Isaiah 32 through 35. Again, it's about restoration of the kingdom, future, future kingdom on earth. Um, God says that he has purposed in these days to do good to Jerusalem. Because the city will be restored, other nations will come to seek God. So this is clearly a point in the future when the kingdom will come. This kingdom will come and be restored. Uh, restoration of the people through this, this kingdom established on earth. Um, and so it's further confirmation that this is not happening right then. It's not happening with Zerubbabel. It's not happening with the return from exile in Persia. Um, you know, the Persian Empire, it's not, it's, it's not happening with that return right here. It's still to happen in the future, this restoration of the kingdom. Uh, okay, uh, starting chapter 9, Zechariah then gives some prophecies about foreign nations, against foreign nations, starting with a burden against Hadrach. Uh, he moves on to Tyre and Sidon and then to Ashkelon, Gaza, and Ekron. Uh, Ashdod and the Philistines are also dealt with, and Zechariah says that no nation will oppress Israel anymore. The Davidic king is again presented. Again, this is continuing the theme of the 12, Davidic king, restoration. Davidic king is again presented, this time as someone who should rejoice greatly, the people should rejoice greatly for. He is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey. 
Very interesting. What we, with what we know of the Gospels, Matthew 21, 5, and John 12, 15, both see Christ's entry into Jerusalem as described here in Zechariah. Uh, the king will, quote, speak peace to the nations, and his dominion will be from sea to sea. What was that other reference? What was that other reference? Uh, oh, it's there in the text. Uh, it's in the... Yeah, John 20, 12, 15. Yep. Sorry. No, no worries. This king will speak peace to the nations, and his dominion will be from sea to sea. God will set all prisoners who have the hope free, and thus deliver Judah and Ephraim. Uh, Zechariah says that the people have had poor leadership, but now God will be shepherd to his flock. Uh, he will strengthen the house of Judah because of his compassion. Israel will end up prevailing over leaders from other nations. God says that he will not have, quote, pity on the inhabitants of the land. He will drive out these human shepherds before the Davidic king takes over. We see something very similar in Ezekiel 34. Um, so that if you remember Ezekiel 34, that goes into this whole thing about the rejection of the good shepherd by the people. Um, and uh, let's see, let's read here. Um, here in 11.12, it says, Then I said to him, If it seems good to you, give me my wages, but if not, keep them. And they, waited, they weighed out as many as my wages, 30 pieces of silver. So uh, we have this, this idea of the rejection of the good shepherd by the people. He is given his 30 pieces of silver and rejected because they did not want to follow him. So then Matthew picks up on this passage here and shows that this is fulfilled in Jesus. This is uh, Matthew 16, 15, I think. Um, yeah. And then uh, let's see, Zechariah 12 through 14, God declares himself to be the creator of the heavens and the earth. He says he will strengthen Jerusalem and Judah. He will protect them against other attackers. That's the blank there. In that day, the Lord will defend them and all the nations that come against Jerusalem will be destroyed. God says that Israel will mourn over the one they have pierced. God's spirit will be poured out to enable the people to do this. And in that day, a fountain will be opened for the house of David and for the inhabitants of Jerusalem for sin and impurity. Uh, sin must be dealt with here. Sin will be cleansed, and it will lead to the removal of idols and false prophets. Uh, so sin must be dealt with for the establishment 
of the kingship and the renewal of Jerusalem. Um, so we've got some similarities here to the atonement passages in the suffering servant um, passages in Isaiah. It says here, a shepherd will be struck and the people will be scattered. The gospel writers also see this as fulfilled in the time of Christ. This will refine the people and create another remnant. Bless you. Uh, this people will say, the Lord is my God. God will battle against Jerusalem's enemies, descend, descending to the city to defend it. This will bring about the renewal of Jerusalem. As continuous light and living waters will accompany this renewal, the other nations will be completely defeated and plundered. Many of the people of these nations will come to will come periodically to worship God. That's fascinating. So the blessings of Israel will come to all. Right. This is a fulfillment of Genesis 12. Um, through your descendant, all of the nations will be blessed. And we see Paul picking up on this idea of Romans 9 through 11. Gentiles are grafted into the blessings of Israel. So the city will be completely holy and dedicated to him. Um, so significance here is Zechariah provides an excellent description of the transformation of those in the kingdom of God, or in the new covenant, sorry. We must mourn over the death of Christ and receive the Holy Spirit. In this way, sin will be cleansed from our lives. Uh, Zechariah 12.10 says, And I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy, so that when they look on me, on whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him, as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him, as one weeps over a firstborn. And then if you skip ahead to 13, <coughs> 7 through 9, this is the passage about the shepherd being struck. It says, Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, against the man who stands next to me, declares the Lord of hosts. Strike the shepherd, and the sheep, and the sheep will be scattered. I will turn my hand against the little ones. On the whole land, declares the Lord, two-thirds shall be cut off and perish, and one-third shall be left alive. And I will put this third into the fire and refine them as one who refines silver and test them as gold it is tested. They will call upon my name and I will answer them. I will say they are my people and they will say the Lord is my God. So we have this description of, you know, a lot of what's happening in the New Covenant, in the New Testament. Zechariah provides an excellent description of this transformation of folks in the New Covenant Oh, we must mourn over the death of Christ, receive the Holy Spirit, and this way will be, our sin will be cleansed from our lives. And so for discussion, have you been transformed by the death of Christ and the presence of the Holy Spirit? When was the last time you mourned over the death of Christ? How often do you reflect on what he did for you on the cross? Well, theoretically, if you were in the service, you should have reflected on it because we did communion. <laughs> we did communion, so yeah, well-timed. Um, any, any thoughts here?
reflecting on transformation. Yeah, yeah, Ella. Well, it's a yes. That's a good example of or um, on display of being transformed by by what Christ has done on the cross. Thank you for sharing. Anybody else? Okay, I want to talk real quick about the kingdom of God since we're here at um, Zechariah and he's talking so much about it um, and just kind of try to help, you know, big picture, get all these things in line where we talk about the kingdom of God and uh, just a full understanding of um, what scripture says about it. 
Um, God is presented as the king in Isaiah 6. He's sitting on a throne in heaven, and his kingdom is all. It includes the whole earth. We see that in the Psalms. But then Messiah is presented as the king of Israel, right? We saw that in Genesis 49, the promise to um, Judah that the king would come from his line. The king of, um, of Israel would come from his line. And then 2 Samuel 7, that it would come from the line of David. So the Messiah is presented as the king of Israel who would fulfill the Abrahamic covenant, defeat Israel's enemies, and establish a kingdom over all the nations. So we saw that in Numbers, 1 Samuel, Zechariah here, Zechariah 14, we just read, and of course Isaiah 2, which we read a few weeks ago. Um, the gospel writers present Jesus as this king, right? Very clearly. <laughs> they say this is the king that is mentioned here in the Old Testament. This is the Messiah. Um, and then Jesus himself claimed it. He spoke of his own earthly ministry as a fulfillment of the kingdom of God, right? I mean, right here at the beginning of Mark, it's the kingdom of God is here. This was, the mess this was actually the gospel message before he died on the cross. It's, that's what he wanted the... Everyone did, he wanted his followers to tell people is the kingdom of God is here. That was, that was what it was because it was there in the presence of him, the king, and of his miracles. His miracles attested to the fact that the kingdom was here in his presence. So um, then he was rejected, right? So because of his Christ's rejection, God's fulfillment of the messianic kingdom is postponed to a future millennium. So you can kind of got a little timeline down here at the bottom and you can kind of see these kind of kind of more three phases I'll, I'll get to your question in a second here three phases of the kingdom first it's present in the person of the king that's Jesus ministry on earth then you see what happens at the cross the resurrection and his ascension to heaven now we have the kingdom in a mystery form right Paul talks about the church being a mystery right there was not proclaimed in the Old Testament, um, but we still have the king uh, sitting on the Davidic throne, um, and so we as kingdom citizens are um, following him. We are his subjects here on earth while he, king, is up in heaven, uh, but one day with the day of the Lord, that's what this arrow represents, we will see the kingdom in all its fullness, first in a millennium and then in a new heavens and new earth with, as it says here, the, the, the Messiah will be ruling from Zion. So, yeah, question. I was going to ask about your last point on the board. Yeah. Uh, you don't have any, any references about what, how, how you know that because of Christ's rejection, the fulfillment is postponed. Uh, yeah, I, I'll get you some of those. Okay. But, yeah, I mean, I, I, I'm, um, I'm not, obviously, this is all in God's sovereignty. I'm not trying to suggest that God only acted in a certain way because, but, but I think. So part of uh, the, the dispensational view is that right? Yeah. This. This. Yes. Okay. This would be a. Yeah. This would be a uh, kind of. This here would be kind of progressive dispensationalism. So, um, so we're here, right? Is he's he's resurrected? Um, so the question is, he died for sins. He paid the price. Then he's resurrected. This question of uh, the proclamation of the kingdom was still rejected by Israel. Mm -hmm. So now we have this in mystery form, which is um, the time for the Gentiles. 
And uh, then what we see in the future is Revelation, um, you know, the day of the Lord. We see this tribulation uh, time, which is, uh, I would say, is a fulfillment of uh, Daniel chapter 7 through 9. So where you've got this, um, this 70 weeks prophecy, we'll actually get into this in the spring, but um, you have Daniel speaking to the angel Gabriel, and as we just saw in Jeremiah, Jeremiah is prophesying, well, the 70 day, right, 70 years, the 70 years prophecy. People will return in 70 years, which does happen. Um, and Daniel's asking the angel Gabriel, okay, what about the 70 years? What about the 70 years? This is the restoration. And Daniel responds, or the angel responds, well, the full restoration of the kingdom is not going to be in just the 70 years. It's going to be 70 weeks of years. And after the 69th week of year, weeks of years, uh, the Messiah will be cut off. And then in the 70th week, um, you know, the, there will be a 70th week and then the full restoration. So you see that mapped out in Revelation uh, chapters 4 through 19. We actually see a 70th week. Um, we're fulfilling the, that kind of prophecy about Israel and the purification of Israel. And we see in Revelation Israel coming in droves and repenting and, and coming to Christ. So that's how kind of it would all fit together. Um, and so this, the Messiah is cut off in the 69th week. We see that here. Um, and then so what, what I would take as Romans 9 through 11 and a lot of the other stuff Paul's saying about the church is that this is kind of the king is on his throne, but we're in this kind of intermediary period where um, uh, we're still seeing, I'm, I'm still a kingdom theology guy and that Christ is on his throne. Uh, we can see the kingdom being fulfilled in the church. Um, at the same time, that 70th week still has to happen. Um, and the other prophecies like Isaiah 2 um, still have to happen. Um, there's actually like, I don't know, something like 12% of, um, of Old Testament prophecy about Israel and um, the land, etc., that has not been fulfilled. So, um, you know, a lot of it has, but uh, a lot of it still has not been fulfilled. And so I would say Revelation is a fulfillment of that. So, yeah. Any other questions about this, Kingdom of God? Yeah. I think, you know, the, the word, the phrase is king and the kingdom is really very, very much a metaphor hmm. of who God and and the Messiah are, right? And for us, for people today living in a republic, in a democracy, you know, how, how, how do we relate to that? Uh, yeah. Um, well, uh, certainly we, it's not a one for one, right? Um, I think that what makes America great is that uh, what we're supposed to stand for is freedom of religion, right? Um, we're not a Christian theocracy, um, or at least not supposed to be. Um, and so that's in this kingdom and mystery form with the king up in heaven, that's actually how we should see it work because um, the kingdom is the kingdom is spread and the kingdom is increased through 
the ministry of the word and through the gospel proclamation. So um, that happens, of course, when we have freedom of religion and the ability for a church like ours to come and congregate on a Sunday morning and proclaim the gospel. So um, I think that this will be different, the kingdom in its fullness, because Christ will rule on earth and um, uh, you know, we'll have to see what kind of um, you know, government institution is actually, he actually instills, right? Because um, that may look a little bit more like a theocracy because the, you know, the one in charge is actually will be perfect and all the leaders that we have are not. And the leaders we have are not kings, right? They're elected. So I think that uh, to answer your question, to land the plane, I would say our king in this phase, what we're in right now, our king is up in heaven. He's sitting on the throne, and that's who our allegiance is ultimately to. And then, apart from that, we can submit to the governing authorities, as Romans, 11, or Romans 13 says, um, as long as the submission is in line with um, what the Bible you know, commands us to do. Um, and then we can pray for our leaders. So uh, hopefully that answers your question, but kind of gives us a... Yeah. You know, I, I imagine probably the word say king or kingdom the true meaning is very much lost in translation now given our lack of experience living under a king under a king you know the, yep. you know, the, the type and amount of reverence you would have had right. towards a king right. and also essentially the kingdom essentially the entire world you know about right? yeah. and so you, it, there's, there's no escape so yeah. to speak yeah, yeah. Uh, and I think there's Certainly something when you, uh, um, you know, Paul keeps referring to this uh, word doulos, right? He's a doulos of Christ, which is actually a slave, right? That's what he keeps saying. I'm a slave of Christ. Like, I, my allegiance is to him. It's not a, but it's no longer a choice. Like, I am one of his. Um, so, yeah. Uh, but I think the challenge there is, okay, we, we've never lived under a king. The challenge is to get into the textual world of the Bible, because the textual world of the Bible gives us an appreciation for how great this king is and how much our allegiance should be to him, even if we don't have an actual present-day understanding of it to be able to compare it. Uh, the challenge is for us to jump into this, this textual world and just be more and more into our scriptures. And the more and more we are into our scriptures, the more we can appreciate who this king really is. So, yeah, yeah, nobody good really questions. ever lived under a king like that king. Yeah, right, right, right. Okay, uh, let's move on. Let's get into Malachi. Uh, finish this up here, this small little book here in five minutes. Um, Malachi, book of Malachi was written by Malachi sometime around 435 B.C. Again, post-exile. Uh, that's what we're talking about here with Malachi. Uh, Malachi means my messenger. Uh, that's what it means. So uh, let's see, chapter 1 through 3, 5. Uh, an oracle from the Lord comes to Malachi. God says that he loves the people, just like he loved Jacob, Esau's brother. In the same way that God chose Jacob over Esau, he will build up Israel over Edom. Again, Israel is descendant of descendants of Jacob, and Edom is descendants of Esau. This is all for God's glory. 
Uh, God accuses the priests of despising his name by defiling his altar and offering unacceptable sacrifices. God also accuses the people of presenting blemished animals. to the Lord while keeping the clean animals for themselves. God promises that the priests will be cursed if they continue to not give honor to him. God says that the priests have given up on uh, given up their responsibility of teaching and leading in worship. They have not fulfilled the covenant that God had with Levi. Uh, according to God, the corruption of the priesthood has led to the sin in the family, led to sin in the family. This connection has been made by the prophets before. God's covenant has been profaned. And the people have turned towards foreign gods. Just like they've betrayed the Lord, they've also betrayed their spouses though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. Those that deal treacherously with their spouses are not those with a remnant of the spirit. God says that he hates divorce. Once again, says the people, he once again says the people have dealt treacherously. Um, so this is really like 2, 13 through 16, um, I think there's, there's a real connect. We're not going to, we'll get to the significance here in a second. We're not really going to have time to discuss it, but, um, there is a connection here. It's making between, uh, the husband and wife and God and the people and, um, our reflection of the one relationship with God should be a reflection of, um, our relationship with our spouses. Um, so the people have also questioned, God's justice, that's the blank there. They have tested his patience with this question. He addresses it by promising a coming event, much like Habakkuk. He promises a messenger who will one day come and clear the way. Then the Lord will come to his temple and purify it. After this, the offering of the people will once again be pleasing to God. God says he will also purify the land of its unjust methods and practices. Uh, the conditions are exilic, even though they are not in the exile anymore. So the language is very similar to other passages about the day of the Lord. The reference to a messenger is similar that, to that in the language of Isaiah 40, 3 through 5, where the way is cleared for the Lord's glory. That's the blank there, Lord's glory. Uh, again, no time to discuss it, but uh, significance here, Malachi makes a connection between our covenant before God and our earthly marital covenant. Purity and strength of one is a reflection on the other. So I'd encourage you to think about that. Um, let's finish up here. Sorry, I'm going fast, but we don't have another week, so we gotta we gotta just finish it. <laughs> uh, Malachi three, six through four six, God proclaims that He does not change. 
tells the people to return to him and I will return to you. God challenges the people and their interests, still holding the people to the covenant expectations of Leviticus 26 and Deuteronomy 27 through 28. So um, Mosaic Covenant is still in effect here, right? They're post-exile. They're back from the, uh, from, from the exile. Um, there's, the New Covenant has not happened yet. They're still expected to obey the Mosaic Covenant. Uh, God again, again, God challenges their offerings, claiming that the people are robbing him. Um, he says that, be, he says, quote, bring the whole tithe to the storehouse so that there may be food in my house and test me now in this. If I will not open for you the windows of heaven and pour out for you a blessing until it overflows. God claims that the people have been arrogant and the people even argue that the arrogant are blessed. Malachi is making the case against Israel here uh, to show that they were not ready for the coming king. Uh, chapter 3, verses 13 through 15, it really just describes how they're just not interested in God. Um, they're not re- you're not ready for the Messiah to come because you're not even interested in the Lord. God refers to the remnant who will have their names in the book of remembrance. They are those that, quote, fear the Lord and who esteem his name. God refers to them as mine. In that time in the future, God will distinguish between the righteous and the arrogant in that day, the arrogant and evildoer will be set ablaze. Uh, yeah. Uh, the remnant will enjoy a final healing. Uh, so this is clearly a, you know, a future remnant, not just those who've returned from exile, right? They will enjoy a final healing. Uh, God reminds the people of the law of Moses. Again, they're still expected to obey that. He also promises that he will, quote, send you Elijah, the prophet, before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. Now, Elijah lived long ago at this point, so he's clearly not speaking about literal Elijah, at least we don't think, Um, but somebody in the future, a prophet will come, Uh, Before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord, God says, quote, he will restore the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers. The day of the Lord, that's the blank there, the day of the Lord will restore the people by creating a new remnant and the Elijah figure will prepare the people for this renewal. He will be a messenger. Again, the the name Malachi means messenger. This Elijah figure in the future will be a messenger. This figure will not only restore the hearts of the people, yet also clear the way for the Lord. Uh, Mark sees this prophecy fulfilled in in the coming of John the Baptist. Uh, And again, this is continuing to push the hope into the future. It's not going to happen right now. Full restoration will not happen right now. It's actually going to come some point in the future after this uh, Malachi or this Elijah character uh, arrives. Uh, we will get into this in the writings, but there is a clear th- 
thematic intertextual similarity between the end of Malachi and the end of Deuteronomy. Uh, they both speak about, again, one is the end of the first section of the Hebrew Bible, and this is the end of the second section of the Hebrew Bible. There's a clear similarity. Uh, they both speak about the coming of the prophet in the future, and this one specifically says someone will come before that prophet in the future. Uh, what's also interesting, again, we'll talk about this in the writings. Hopefully this is enough of a carrot for you to show up in six weeks. <laughs> but um, what's also interesting is the beginning of the prophets, Joshua 1, has a lot of intertextual similarities to the beginning of the writings or Psalms, Psalm 1. So um, I actually see, I think, a, a real intentionality by the human authors and the divine author to connect the entire thing, right? You got three sections of the Hebrew Bible, end of, end of the first, beginning of the second, end of the second, beginning of the third. There's connections here that are connecting the entire story together. So if you want to know more about that, January 7th, come back. All right, thanks guys, yeah. <laughs>